Good morning, everyone. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. We're going to go into a second part of what we were reading before concerning marriage and divorce. And particularly, we're going to focus in chapter 7 on a very small part of it, verses 8 through 11 there, and we'll read that as we go along. Uh, this slide that I have up on the board now is the first slide that I had last week. And uh, I want to put that up there again by way of reminder of what we were talking about. There are uh, many situations that can come up in people's lives. Uh, people go through difficulty in marriage. They go through difficulty in divorce. Um, some don't remarry. Some remarry. And I mean, there are a lot of things... To consider, and I want you to know that there's no way that I could do that in a sermon. <laughs> there's no way I could cover each unique individual situation, and I want to reiterate that uh, towards the end. All I want to do is, is teach and to preach and to help us to all understand what's written in the text. Now, there are individual situations uh, that may have certain exceptions to them and, and necessary understandings to them. And, and there's no way that I could cover that and there's no way that I could truly understand all of those things. Uh, the way that people's lives move with regard to marriage and divorce are diverse. And, um, and I have no idea really how to function uh, on each one of those except knowing every detail. And it's so difficult to know every detail. Uh, but regardless of what we look at in the scriptures, the, only, the one thing that we can have, the one hope that we can have is whether we're unmarried, married, divorced, remarried, whatever it is that we're situated in, we will all stand before God and he uh, will judge finally on our situation and what we have chosen. And we each just have to be very careful that we have chosen according to his will as best as we possibly can. Uh, God is a, a graceful God. He extends His grace. He extends His love. And that's what we need to understand. I do not claim to understand everything. And I know that none of you do. <laughs> and so we're all in the same boat there. Uh, so as we read this, let's remember that. And let's consider that. And consider what is read. And what we know about marriage is that God created that covenant in the garden itself. It was, it was the first covenant that he created uh, between himself and humanity. It is not to be taken lightly at any point, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our situations. It's never supposed to be taken lightly. If you're unmarried, you shouldn't take it lightly. If you're married, you shouldn't take it lightly. If you've been divorced, you shouldn't take it lightly. And if you've been remarried, you should not take it lightly. There is no time we get a pass on taking God's premier covenant with humanity lightly. And so each of us needs to remember that as we study this. We also need to remember that God hates divorce. Uh, some of us sitting here have felt divorce in our families, have gone through divorces, and, and perhaps even been remarried. Uh, that's, that's something that does happen. But what the Scriptures teach us is God hates divorce. He hates it. 
And we have to understand that and we have to remember that. And we can't let that weaken in our minds because we, if we are married, if we're going to be married, we have to make sure that that marriage is as strong as it possibly can be. Because that's what God commands. Because He hates divorce. And so let's please remember that. Because divorce is a ravager. It is something uh, that we don't think a lot about, I think, in our nation and among our people. Uh, but we should. When we look at the divorce rate in our nation, it's absolutely staggering. You have about as much chance of a successful marriage as you do winning a bet by flipping a coin. And that is incredible. That is just incredible. I'm not encouraging you to bet. That's not right. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's wrong to do. <laughs> but I'm just saying your chances are about that. And that's just staggering. That is one of the saddest testaments uh, that we could ever have and ever hear of and ever know of in our lives. God's premier covenant with humanity has been lowered to the ch- a 50-50 chance of success. Uh, in our in our nation at least and perhaps in other nations as well. But it's just an, an incredible thing to consider. And we may be the children of divorced parents. We may be the siblings then because of that statistic of divorced siblings. We ourselves might be divorced. And again, every and each experience is unique, but they've all been devastating. They've all been devastating when that happens. I have yet to speak to a divorced person who does not speak and feel of the damage of a divorce as if someone had died. You and I have experienced deaths of those that we held very close to us that we loved. Some of them we remember. Some of them we carry with us no matter what the situation is. I remember being so thankful when they sold my mother's house. I thought, I'm so thankful I don't ever have to walk into that room and see that bed that she died in. <laughs> I don't ever have to see the kitchen that she worked in my entire youth. I, I didn't hold those things dear. I wanted to be as far away from those as I can. Any and all reminders that could remind me of that, because I will hold that with me for the rest of my life. And it's just an incredible feeling. And then when people that are divorced look at me and they tell me, Joe, it feels like that, I think, oh... No one, no one should have to feel that. And that's why God hates it. Because He loves His people. He loves His creation. He loves His children. And they should never have to experience anything like that. And when we read these passages like Paul writing to the Corinthian brethren, we learn it's never been any different. How sad is it? It's never been any different. Divorce rages on then as it does now. And divorce, I personify divorce here. Divorce rages and looks for allies and looks for supporters. Divorce is a dangerous, deadly enemy. And again, regardless of our situations before God, that's just the fact. That's exactly what it is. And so Paul, in in our passage, he uses powerful language to illustrate that as Paul does, being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if you look there at verses 8 through 11, we see some powerful language there. Though we don't always understand it, though we don't always see it or expect it or accept it as the powerful language that it is. He says there, he says, to the unmarried and the widows, 
I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. It's just very simple, isn't it? And yet there are few passages that have spurned such great controversy about divorce than this passage. Even though divorce is hated by God, should be hated by us, even in spite of all of that, we have a very controversial passage here. And really it's just, as far as I can tell, based on those seeking to benefit from that. In some way. Perhaps in a righteous way. I cannot always tell. Uh, Perhaps in an unrighteous way. But we see it time and time again. So much that someone would look at the unmarried here and say, you know, Paul is talking to everybody that is single. Whether their, their spouse died, they were divorced, whether they're unmarried. You know, there's no way. There's no way Paul is doing that. When Paul speaks, it is with words of authority and power. His design, his structure of speaking is powerful. And look at what he says there. He says very simply, he says to the unmarried and the widows. Why would he include the widows and the unmarried in the same sentence if he was talking about the same thing? No, we have to be more careful. God anticipating human wisdom and response to the matter gives the apostle the words that he needs to give in this discourse that is unparalleled in its focus and in its power just in case someone would want to use it for some kind of misdirection whether unwittingly or on purpose. They want to use it and they want to misdirect. Paul includes widows in order to make the unmarried clear. And he, and he uses unmarried in order to make widow clear. He uses both of them in the same language. He's talking about widows, meaning their spouses have died. And he's talking about unmarried, meaning those that have never been married. That's what he means. Using the word differently or wanting it to be differently does not magically make the unmarried the divorced here. That's an unfair imposition on the passage. There are plenty of passages in the Scripture to teach us about such things. And this is not one of those. Now, what about Paul's advice? To remain as he is. That's also been a problem in this passage. Is Paul demanding that living celibate is more pious or more holy than God's first covenant with humanity in the garden? Absolutely not. That doesn't make any sense at all. Of course he's not saying that. God's not saying that uh, at all through Paul. He's not demanding that living celibate is somehow more holy. But I tell you what Paul is doing. Paul is addressing a people and a time where marriage was expected 
And you know, we live in the same time. When I see that 50 percentile or more, depending on the year, divorce rate in our nation, I see Corinth. I see that same kind of situation today. I I think that we have failed modernly the same way that they failed. Paul is dealing with a culture and a society that is almost forcing marriage is best. Isn't that what we believe? Oh, it's best to be married. Aren't there people that don't have to be married? Sure. Why would you force them to be married? I don't know. You know, I have a sister now in her 70s and she has never been married. (laughs) And I told her, I said, sorry, sis, we spoiled you too much. You just couldn't find anybody that was decent enough for you. You know, my sister would have made a, a wonderful mother. You know, she would have loved her children, protected them like like you would not believe, overprotected them, probably. And she, she's just that kind of person. And I, I thought to myself my whole life how, how wonderful that would have been for her, but there just there wasn't anybody for her. And she didn't dwell on it. She just went about her life and did things. Now, what would somebody call her? Would you call her a spinster? Would you call her an old maid? Right? I don't even know what the word is in Spanish. What do you call it in Spanish? <laughs> you know, what's the terrible phrases and words that we use for people who don't get married? Ooh. You know. And that's exactly the kind of people that Paul was admonishing and dealing with here. People who expected people to be married and that was best. And that's what we do today. We, we almost force people to be married. What? You're 20 and you're not married yet? What is wrong with you? What? You're 30 and not married yet? Sometimes I wonder if people are just in miserable marriages and they want the extra company. It's sad the way that we look at it. You know, why are you going to force yourself <coughs> excuse me, into a difficult position that you're not ready for just because society or norms or traditions tell us Hey, that's something you should think about doing. That doesn't make any sense with anything else. Why does it make sense with this? And so we look at that and we see that and that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. That's exactly what Paul is teaching against. Second, Paul is issuing an admonition that either of those could be holy lives. We have to understand that too. Either of those lives could be holy lives. Somebody mentioned last week, wasn't it amazing that Paul had that gift? Yeah, it was. Paul said in other places, in another place, he said, I I have the power to lead a wife. I just don't. He could if he wanted to. If that was his desire, if that was his focus, if that was the way that he wanted to live his life, he could. But he acknowledged that's where your focus should be if you do that. And he wanted to focus on the gospel. So he didn't. He didn't feel right doing both. What's one of the first things you love in a preacher? They gotta be married, right? They gotta be married. They gotta be married and they gotta have kids. And then they pay attention to their families and their kids and what do you do? You're not a very good preacher. You're not exactly where you need to be every 24 hours of the day. You know, you know, I know where you should be doing this and you should be doing that. You're over there with your wife and kids. Well, why don't you do something else? Well, what are you doing with my wife and kids? Good. 
That's what God told you to do. We make impositions and then we make consequences for those impositions. We are rude and cruel people. At the very base, just like the Corinthians were. Isn't that what we say? Isn't that what we do? And Paul said, if you're married, stay married because you've got to focus on being married. That's a godly thing. You can't let that fall apart. How many preachers have you known? And I'm going off on preachers, of course. Have gone through divorces that you have known. What do you blame that on? (laughs) Well, they gave in to sin. Sure they did. Maybe they shouldn't have been married. Maybe they weren't ready to be married. And maybe that was just one thing that compounded everything else. Isn't it incredible what we do to ourselves and we don't even take a moment to think about it? Just like the Corinthians. They didn't even take a moment to think about it. And Paul is saying either life could be wonderful. But we say terrible things about people who are unmarried. Don't we? We say terrible things about them. We tell them, you know, you're this or you're that or you should be married or you, you know, if you're not married yet, there's something wrong with you. And we will say so many incredibly ignorant things. And we are just as astounding in our ignorance as they are in Corinth. We vilify the lives of single people. We vilify them. Why? Because a wife and kids makes you more holy. Well, I can tell you in just my 50 years on the earth, I can prove that wrong again and again and again. A wife and kids does not make you more holy. If you weren't holy going into it, you're not going to get holy coming out of it. And that's the same thing about anything else. But we say that. As parents, we have such a desire for grandchildren sometimes. This is one of my favorites over the years. They need to get married. Why? I want grandchildren. Well, then that's your problem. Not their problem. What if they don't want to have grandchildren? Well, I want grandchildren. You know, I didn't have kids, so I couldn't have grandchildren. I've actually heard people say that. Are you kidding me? I always tell people I had kids so I could have somebody else to take out the trash. But I'm not, I don't mean that. You know, it's just a joke. I'm just kidding. I didn't have kids, so I would have my own little workforce, although it's worked out quite nicely that way. I have, I didn't have kids for that purpose. I didn't have kids for that purpose. However, it's a nice benefit. <laughs> but, but there are those that will actually force their children to marry because, man, they want some grandkids. And they don't care what the cost is for that. They don't care if you're married to a hag. They don't care if you're married to a twerp. They don't care about that. They just want procreation, everybody. That's what they want. And they don't care what it costs to get it. Isn't that sad? Isn't that incredibly astounding? The things we will talk ourselves into. For the worst reasons. And there are countless, literally countless, biblical passages I, I, I've met Christians that hate to read the book of Solomon. 
You know, yesterday Martha was telling me, she goes, she goes, I read the book of Solomon to Fito like a hundred times over our lifetime. And every time I'd finish it, he'd look at me and go, Martha, read it again. <laughs> because it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. You want to learn how to be husband and wife? Read the Song of Solomon. That's really the only book you'll need. The other ones are great too. Don't get me wrong. But the Song of Solomon, that's the way you talk to your wife. That's the way you regard your wife. That's the way you talk to your husband. That's the way you regard your husband. Now, you'll have to update the compliments. Okay, you can't tell your wife her eyes are like a lamb's eyes or something like that. That that would not work. But still... The compliments should be there. They should be there. And that's what the book teaches us. And that's what the Bible teaches us. And there are countless instructions there that teaches us how we can have good, godly, permanent, lifelong marriages. All we have to do is is remember that. Are you married, divorced, and remarried? Do you believe you're right before the Lord? Then practice those marriage principles. If you are married for the first time and you want that marriage to last, practice those principles. If you're unmarried and you're looking to be married, remember, those are the principles you better be practicing. It is always the same. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, there are countless passages. And Paul says the focus, the foundation, is self-control. That's why any lifestyle like that could be happy. A single or a married lifestyle, because there's self-control. We might wonder how many of those statistics that that look like a coin flip, may be the result of these culture-enforced marriages that we have. We might wonder why we force lustful people together and then they divorce. Oh, you're lusting after each other? You better get married. We talked about that last time. No, 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 no. That's bad advice. Because if lust is what leads to the marriage, lust will end the marriage in most cases. At least 50% of them if the statistics are true. Are you going to base the future of your loved ones on a coin flip? No. No, 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 no. We must think better than that. We must think stronger than that. We have likely seen many marriages allowed to move forward with nobody to criticize them. That's what people want, right? I want to get married and I don't want anybody to criticize the fact. I've told young people and old people alike for the last 20 some odd years, I just don't see how the two of you should be married. Well, you don't know what I know. You don't understand what I understand. You're right. I'm the objective outside viewpoint. What could I possibly see that you don't see? What could I possibly know? Over 20 years, I have seen dozens of divorces. I have seen dozens of families fall apart. I've seen them talk to each other. I've heard them say the things they shouldn't say. Think the things they shouldn't think. Do the things they should not do. I have seen all the pitfalls and I'm warning you, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Is that what it feels like to get older, guys? Those of you that are older, they just don't listen to you. I don't like that feeling. That's that's getting old already. (laughs) 
Just don't listen. You old fool, what do you know? Right? What are you talking about? How many of us have let a marriage go by without the slightest criticism? Because they were our friend. They were our family member. They were our kids. No. Danger. Unless there was no criticism to be given. No warning that needed to be done. No biblical teaching. Somebody asked me, Joe, will you do a wedding? Sure. Can you give me three or four weeks of your time so we can sit and study the Bible every day? No. Well, then I can't do the wedding. Because if you don't know where you're going, I can't help in taking you there. Oh, we're fine. We'll be ready. My own brother told me, he said, I'm 40 years old. I know exactly what it takes now. I've made all my mistakes. You just shut up. I know I ought to be married. He was divorced in a year. Why does that happen? Why are we just like that? I have no idea. But we, we, our hearts break, don't they? As we tearfully watch these unions fall apart. But we have to ask ourselves, are we really doing anything about it? Either ourselves or for others? <coughs> That's a tough question. But I tell you, Paul didn't wonder about anything. Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. And he instructed the single life before God can be holy if it's self-controlled. Do you read that there? That's exactly what he says. He also teaches here and in other places the married life can be wonderful if its basis is self-control. That's the key. Self-control is essential in or out of marriage. That's what we need to read. That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to teach. That's what we need to preach. That's what we need to study. That's what we need to believe. We talked about this before. The biblical teaching on godly marriage is an antidote for sexual immorality outside of a marriage. Why do two people need to get married? So they don't commit fornication. That's why. Is that the only reason? No! And if it is the only reason, you keep them apart and teach them about that. Help them to practice that. We do it with our kids, right? Oh, you're going on your first date? Oh, okay. Well, I'll drop you off in the middle of town at, you know, 6 p.m. And I'll come get you at 2 a.m., same place. Okay, you go do what you want. Is that how you raised your kids? That would explain some things if you did. No, 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 no. You'll be here. What time does the movie start? About 4 o'clock. No, no, no. What time does the movie start? 4.10. Great. Okay, I'm going to drop you off at 4 o'clock. They're going to go straight into movies. And when does the movie end? That's when I'm going to see you there. If I don't see you there, if I see you there 10 seconds later, right? (laughs) 10 seconds later, I'm coming out of that car and there's going to be some blood on the sidewalk or something because I'm going to be ticked. And if I, I'm going to ask you about the movie too. I may go see the movie before I let you go to the movie. Just so I know you were watching every scene. People say, Joe, that's crazy. You're so controlling. Thank you! Because they are so out of control when they're young. We all are. We're all like that. I remember being young. You never meet anybody more stupid than me when you were young. 
I know how that goes. Why would I not do something better? Do something more? And see, that's what he's teaching. He's teaching we have to avoid fornication. We have to avoid adultery. And so you get married so that doesn't happen. You get married so that doesn't happen. That's the, that's the force of Paul's point. It's better not to enter the premier covenant between God and man than to enter it blindly or under some goofy assumption. And yet, if the statistics are right and they are, that's exactly what we do. Don't we do the same thing for baptism? I always think about an illustration. Why do kids say they want to be baptized? Well, mom and dad keep telling me I have to. (laughs) Is that the reason you're baptized? Because mom and dad are pressuring you to do it? That's a sad testament to the the glory of the choice of baptism and being in Christ. Well, I've heard people, well, I got baptized because my brother did it, so I thought I'd do it too. Or my sister did it. We always do everything together. So, so we got baptized together. Yeah, no, that's not the reason. And yet we use the same things for marriage, don't we? My parents are pressuring me, so I got to find the guy soon. Oh, great. That's a wonderful foundation to build a, wedding, a family on, right? No, no, it's not. See, Paul is saying, look, if you're married, you should not divorce. It's very simple what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. Now we also have there in verses 10 and 11 a parenthetical statement. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That's very useful. Paul is saying, you know, people will divorce. That does happen. He knows it happened then just like it happens now. We know that. We're not in question about that. That's exactly what goes on. But what we have come to, I fear, is a time where we use exceptions as rules. And think the rule is the exception. And that is sad. That is very sad. So we need to listen anew. With renewed zeal. With renewed vigor. To what God says through Paul. In the Corinthian letter. These are not magic words to change the reality of something. These are words to live by. Paul says, without exception, do not divorce. We know that God hates it. We know that if we have problems in marriage, we should fix it if we can. Work through it if we can. Regard marriage as we vowed before God and witnesses to regard it as until death do we part. God never designed marriage to end except in death. That's it. And Paul is being very clear about that. But And it's because divorce is treacherous, isn't it? It's an awful word, isn't it? Malachi uses the word. The Old Testament uses the word again and again about, about, about uh, poor marriages and bad relationships between husbands and wives. The word used is treachery. So certainly in a marriage, when it comes to a divorce, there is treachery. Now it might be only by one of the spouses. But it could be by both. Right? 
It could be both spouses are treacherous. It could be only one, but it's still treachery. It's not like we're ignorant to what causes divorce. We know what causes divorce. We know it. We've seen it over and over again. The question is, do we practice what leads to reconciliation? Or at least what can be appreciated or understood as a clearing of the matter. You cheated on me, I'm out the door. Boom. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, you cheated on me. You have defiled the marital covenant. You need to repent. And I need to forgive you. And we've got to get through this. And we've got to pray about this. And we've got to study about this. And you've got to change some habits, buddy. And I've got to change some habits. Something creeped into our covenant that shouldn't be there. And we need to drive it out. Well, sometimes that still doesn't work. I understand that. I'm no fool and you understand that. Sometimes that just doesn't work. But the question is, is that how we regard these things? Are we ready to fix it because God hates it? Are we trying to work through it because we vowed until death do we part? You remember in 2 Corinthians 7, if you go forward a little bit to 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 12, Paul is, is extolling the virtues of how the Corinthians responded to what he admonished them, the way that he rebuked them. Actually, let's go ahead and read that. In 2 Corinthians 7, in 2 Corinthians 7, 10-12, look at what he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's what we should do in marriages. We should rebuke one another when we sin and have godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And look at why he says that. Whereas worldly grief produces death, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what zeal, what longing, what punishment. Look at what he tells them. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Social media, right? Today, how many marriages are being affected by social media? Why are you talking to that woman on Facebook? Why is that lady Instagramming you? You know, why are all these texts going on? What's the answer to that? What are you doing looking at my phone? Why are you on my computer? I'll tell you what the answer to that is. They're your spouse. That's what the answer to that is. If you have secrets from them, repent. And live your life so as not to punish them with your Whatever it is that you're doing. Because fornication isn't just sex. Fornication happens up here. Fornication happens right here in the heart. That's where it happens. It's not just about sex. And we often easily forget that. What business do you have, you know, having somebody answer, you have these conversations on social media? Some people talk to other women or other men on social media more than they talk to their own spouses. What excuse is there for that? Well, I work with them. Well, then you should work less. Well, we've been friends since we were kids. Time to get a new friend. This is a very simple combination here. Paul is not kidding. 
And we need to stop kidding ourselves. This is treacherous activity. And when we are rebuked for it, when we are admonished for it, we need to repent, fix it, work through it, regard marriage the way that we vowed. Until death. Because otherwise you don't really mean that. And that's treachery. But we're not foolish, are we? We know that divorce happens. We know that. I get it. Since since the time of Corinth, divorce happens. You know, you may have gone through a divorce, I may have gone through a divorce, our parents, our, <laughs> our siblings, whoever, whoever it is, we, some, all of us, have either been touched by it or gone through it. And we're sitting in this in this difficult situation and God forbid that we would ever have to do that, but that is exactly what happens. And Paul understands that tendency and he addresses it. And he doesn't give permission to divorce. That's not what he says here. Okay, please remember that. He's not saying, oh, go ahead and divorce. He's saying if, Right? If she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. It's the same for men, just because it's written to a woman. It's the same for men. Don't get that mixed up. God, you know, Paul is not a misogynist or something like that. No, he's talking to people about people. Just remember that. This is not permission to divorce, but rather an admonition to resolve and have a certain mindset in a certain way. And notice that he gives two options. What are my options in divorce, Joe? Well, according to the Scriptures. Not according to Joe Wright. Not according to somebody else who loves you so much they're going to make any exception for you they possibly can. But according to the Bible, he says you have to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Okay, so remain unmarried, reconcile to spouse. In our times, we know a third option. But let's not forget that Paul is not addressing that here. Paul is addressing the rule, not the exception. And you and I need to remember that. Again, if you are remarried and you feel you are righteously have done that, then remember this. Remember that your option is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse should a divorce happen. But don't you let that divorce happen. That's the point. If you're married, rules, they'll go for you. If you want to be married, remember that for your marriage. Please don't forget this. But we do exercise a third option in this day and age, do we not? And we do base it on the Scriptures. Sometimes we divorce. But God hates divorce. Paul said, remain unmarried or be reconciled. But sometimes we remarry. And we do so based on Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. That's what we do it on. We base the remarriage principle on two passages in the New Testament. Because frankly, it's not found anywhere else. It's not found in 1 Corinthians. It is found in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 
and we draw from the wisdom of that. We infer and imply from the wisdom there that we can be remarried for those purposes. Let's remember that third option. And while I'm not going to criticize those who teach and benefit from the exercise of that third option, I will frankly assert to you that if you have not exercised the first two, you don't deserve the third. That's a tough thing for me to say. That's a difficult thing for me to say. Because I believe people divorce all too quickly. I knew a man in Christ who begged and pleaded with his wife for an entire year to fix their marriage. He wanted to be reconciled. And she cheated on him multiple times. And he wanted to be reconciled. And he begged her, let's fix this. We can fix this. We're both Christians. We can fix this. For a solid year, he begged her. He went to her adulterous lover face to face and said, please, step away from my life so I can fix my life with my wife. And the guy said, I'll have your wife anytime I want. I looked at him and I said, and what kept you from killing him? Why aren't you in jail? That's the first thought that came to my mind. I'd have snapped. I hope I wouldn't have. God forgive me for saying that. But boy, I would have been upset. You know, you talk about getting your blood boiling. I come to you man to man and say, please stop this with my wife so I can fix my marriage. And you spit that in my face. There's going to be ambulance somewhere. But there wasn't. He tried and he tried and he tried and he turned away and he got married again. He's been married to a wonderful woman for many years. I'm not here to criticize that. But he did do those two things, didn't he? He wanted to be reconciled or remain unmarried until that reconciliation could happen. And when it just was beyond his control, when it just couldn't happen, he went on with his life. And I love him very much. And I think he's very brave. And very godly for doing that. But I tell you what, a lot of people aren't. And I do believe that is wrong. When we don't try to fix what God has placed together, we are guilty. And so when we look in Matthew 5 and 32, and when we look in Matthew 19 and 9, let's remember that. Because Matthew 5 and 32 and Matthew 19 and 9 singularly is not teaching about remarriage. It's teaching about divorce. And it's interesting because God is allowing divorce here. Isn't that amazing? God in His infinite love and compassion and providence and grace says through His own Son, Jesus Christ, That you can divorce for fornication. If there is no way to resolve it, you can divorce. Because God doesn't want you to be in that kind of a situation. Isn't He so... God, the Creator of all the universe, who hates divorce, says, I don't want you in that marriage. If that cannot be reconciled, I don't want you there. 
Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that incredible? He's so great, so compassionate, that the thing He hates more than just about anything, He gives grace for. That's That's just amazing. Singularly in context, God is demanding in in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that remarriage isn't an option. But, there are many, and have been many for some time, who imply that exception. What about them then? What about those that are remarried for that cause? This is the question that has come from the hopeful hearts of many Christians to me many times. And my heart breaks every time it happens. Because certainly these are those who have sought reconciliation in terms of Paul's options, but found none. That man's wife was content to keep fornicating. and that Her adulterous lover was content to keep fornicating with her. And he just said, I, I can't live in that. Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 come from God and say, no, brother, you don't have to live through that. Put her away. No doubt in my mind. But I will say this. Such can be very complicated. And like I told you before, I can't answer it for you in a sermon. I cannot tell if you tried your best to reconcile. I cannot tell if you tried your best to fix whatever that was. I don't even know what it was. But I can tell you that if you are remarried, make sure that that is the case. And make sure that that is the way you stand before God. Because I don't know. I don't have to stand before God for you in judgment. You don't have to stand before God for me in judgment. And thank God for that. Because God knows my heart and my mind and my faith and my dedication to Him. God knows your mind, your heart, your faith, your dedication to Him. You will answer to Him. Not me. Not anybody else. You will answer to Him. But, if you need anything, please know that I and other Christians are ready to listen. We're ready to study in the Scriptures with you privately. Where none of this should ever go any farther than the between just the two of us. And we can talk to each other. And for many, brethren, I already have. We've already talked. I've already told you what I think and what I believe. And what I understand. But still, we have to all stand before God, don't we? And so I'll end this very difficult sermon with just some simple warnings. Remember what Paul wrote the Romans in the seventh chapter of Romans. Okay, and let's go back there and look at that before we leave, just remembering this. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. 
Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. We know what the Scriptures teach about marriage. Then you look at Matthew 5, and you look at Matthew 19, and you learn that God also says, if you were married to someone and they were fornicators, and there was no way to reconcile that, you can divorce them as well. That's what we know. And that is all we know from the Scriptures about divorce. But a person who just leaves one spouse to marry another is living in adultery. That's what the Bible says. I'm not saying that. That is the Word of God. I've gotten attacked plenty of times over the years because I've been told by people, you're saying that. No, I'm not. I am reading that. I am relaying that exactly the way it is. My dad used to call this the burn the biscuits principle. You can't leave your wife just because you hate her cooking and you're done with her. You can't do that. You can't leave your husband because he turned into a slob after you got married and you had no idea he was such an idiot. Okay, that's, that's not the way it goes here. And I've had impassioned pleas from men and women over the last 20 some odd years that say, you know, my husband is abusive. What am I going to do? I don't have an exception to divorce him. My answer is really simple. Call the police and have the scumbag put in jail. There's your option. Tell your dad. Let him take care of it. No, that's, I'm just joking. I, I wouldn't do that. Okay, But I'm just saying, find the way to reconcile that. Fix it. But God is clear. We don't get to make up the rules for divorce because we're really cool and wise and smart. We get to follow the rules for divorce that God has set forth in the Scriptures. Let us not pervert either the implied exception of Matthew 19.9 into something it is not. Were you trying to be forgiving? And it's a terrible sin, I'll grant you. But it's not any more terrible than any of the others. Were you trying to be forgiving? Were you trying to reconcile? And reconciliation just wasn't there. You know, it's unfair to do otherwise. Because God has given you and I space to repent that is infinite. You you are allowed to repent. God has given us space to repent. And if we fail to give our spouses, especially if they were our brothers or sisters in Christ, I say especially, space to repent, then we have failed in that relationship. And we must all be very careful about that. This is not a joke. This is not something to enter into lightly. This is what God has given us. This is an extreme difficulty. And it deserves an extreme dedication by two people. Not just by one. That's not what a marriage is about. Not just one person, but two people who lovingly and compassionately seek reconciliation under God. And any person not willing to extend that is a questionable person. 
And that's all I can say. Again, I don't know your circumstances at all. But you have to be sure. I don't have to be sure. You have to be sure. Any person remarried, having extended that space to repent to a former spouse, all I can say is they may be acceptable to God. Again, I don't know your circumstances. But I know that if you have done that, you must strive to be acceptable to God. It's amazing how many people don't want you to pass judgment on something until they want you to pass judgment on something. It amazes me. Well, why can't you say that I'm okay in my marriage? Why can't you say that my kids are okay in their marriage? Why can't you say my best friend is okay in their remarriage? I don't know the details. You want me to do something or say something I cannot say. That's only for them. I can't tell you how many people have gotten mad at me about that. Why? Why? That wouldn't work in any other situation. I cannot determine God's judgment one way or the other, nor can any other individual. We all need to remember we must all stand before the throne of grace and judgment on our own, not for or against one another, and read the sobering passages to read that we have to read in the Scripture and not be afraid. And not be scared. But understand, this is God's power speaking to us across space and time so that we can understand the best way to live our lives, to have eternal life. Romans 14, 22 and 23 says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. <clears throat> See, the sin here is doubt. Look at what he says. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Now we're talking about eating there, but you can plug in anything. And look at what he says. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. To those married according to the re- to the revealed will of God, whoever you are, <laughs> don't waver. Do not waver. Do not compromise. You are in a covenant blessing that God has provided for you. Those of you that are unmarried and you want to be in that marriage, in that covenant, remember these things and do not forget them. Because if we would not forget them, we would not have to suffer so much. But we often forget too easily. And let's make sure that we don't do that. God has a design, and I'm here to tell you that design is perfect. Unfortunately, it has to be executed by very imperfect people. And sometimes it doesn't work out the way it should. But God gives more grace. Isn't that what Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 show us? You know, He gives us the covenant from the time of the garden. He reinforces it. He defends it. He provides for it. Falls apart. And He says, here's more grace. Incredible. And you know, God's grace is great. Like I told you before, someone once asked me, Joe, do you think that God's grace 
can cover me for what I have done and what I have repented of. And I told him, I don't know. I think he's going to use up all of it on me. That's really the way I feel. I don't know. That's the fact. I don't, I, I cannot gauge God's grace. There may not be any left over when he gets done with this turkey. Let me tell you, there may not be any left over. So I apologize to you for that. No, it's infinite. It's endless. God's grace can cover a multitude of things. Just make sure you're on the up and up. Just make sure you aren't trying to lie to yourself, to lie to your spouse, to lie to your potential spouse, and don't lie to God. You can't do it. That's our lesson. And if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, don't do it because your parents are forcing you to. Don't do it because your loved ones want you to. Don't do it because somebody else in your family did it and you thought it was really cool. And don't do it because we have a heater now on the baptistry. Okay, don't do it for that reason either. Do it because you want to come to the Lord, you want to repent of your sins, and you want them washed away, and you want to walk in newness of life. And if you are a Christian and you have fallen short of that, God gives more grace. Accept it. Turn to it. Do not regard it as nothing. Do not compromise it. Whatever your need, if you have any, please, let it be known while we stand together and while we sing.